0: Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 4. As we continue going through Isaiah, we're uh, now at chapter 4, verse 2. And uh, we'll go through verse 6, so the rest of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of their survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to your word, uh, we remember the words of the Lord Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, uh, who tells us that the sheep hear his voice, and they know him and they follow him. And so we pray that as we come to these words of Isaiah that are the words of Christ, that your sheep will hear you and know you and follow you, uh, that we would hear you speaking to us. And we pray that you would even bring in those who are not of the fold, those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, but that they would hear his voice even this morning and come to him. We pray for your grace. We pray, our Father, that you would send your spirit to help us and to give us insight into your word. We ask in Christ's name. Well, some of you may know the name John Angel James. He was a uh, pastor in England in the mid 1800s. He wrote some books, and uh, one of his books was called Female Piety. Female Piety it's a guide for young women about how to grow up and be a godly woman. And he starts in the first chapter by talking about the benefits that Christianity gives to women. And he's arguing that only Christianity really honors women. And so here's how he puts it. There's much more we could say about it, but here's one sentence from that first chapter. He says, What Christianity does for woman is to fit her to be neither the goddess nor the slave, but the friend and companion of men, and to teach men to consider her ...in this honorable and amiable aspect. So only Christianity, he's saying, teaches men to consider women in an honorable way. To not treat them and think of them as either the goddess or the slave. Now it's pretty easy, I think, to understand uh, how some cultures treat women as slaves. You can think of the Taliban in Afghanistan or India before missionaries like William Carey came where they would uh, when a husband died they would throw the wife onto the funeral pyre and they would kill the wife because their idea of a woman is that she has no value apart from her husband and William Carey was one of the missionaries who came along and changed that whole practice in India. And so Christianity comes along and says, no, women are not the slaves of men. But then he also says, they're also not to be treated as goddesses. And that one might be a little harder for us to understand. He explains, if you read the chapter, what he means by that. Basically, he means what we would call the objectification of women. Treating women as objects, focusing on women and thinking about women only based on external appearance and not based on spiritual things, based on their souls. He uses the example of concubines. There are cultures, pagan cultures, that had concubines. And Christianity was one of the, uh, Christianity came into into many cultures and, and valued marriage as between a man and a woman. And there are more examples that he gives. And I think we can see in our culture, which is basically a pagan, secular culture, that this is how the ungodly treat women, if we want to use his terms, as goddesses, just for their external appearance. We don't have concubines. We would say we're more advanced than that, but that's basically how many men treat women. Use them, and then discard them. Just treat them like an object in the way that you think about them, talk about them, and use them. And in our modern day, it's not hard to see how that plays out for a woman. A girl grows up in this culture and she sees all around her what this world values in a woman. She sees the ads, the billboards, the actresses that play roles, and the girl thinks that's what I need to look like if I'm going to be valued in this culture. I need to look a certain way. So I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do a lot of things. I'm going to buy a lot of things to make sure that I look like that because then people will think that I'm worth something. And if I don't and if I can't, then I'm just going to be really depressed for a long time. That's basically the way our culture looks at women. And so John Angel James in this chapter, he says, That Christianity teaches us not to look at women according to what he calls senses and passions. And I think you can figure out what that means. And he's basically saying what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. That a younger man, Timothy, is to look at younger women as sisters in all purity. To look at other women and to think of them as sisters. There are certain ways you don't look at your sister and you don't think about your sister in that way. And Paul says to Timothy, treat all women like that. That's what Christianity teaches us. And so we need to ask ourselves, and the question that the Word of God puts before you is, is that how you think about women? Whether you're a man, and the way that you look, and the way that you think about women, or whether you're a woman yourself, and the way that you think about yourself, and the things that you focus on, and the things that you desire, and you aspire to be, and you work hard to achieve. Is it according to the senses and the passions? Try to be like a cultural goddess, to use those words. Well, I'm bringing all this up and John Angel James's uh, chapter there because as we get to chapter four and we read about the branch, there's a connection of chapter four with the context of what we've been talking about the last few weeks, and especially in chapter three. Now, chapter four is a contrast of beauty, a contrast of a beautiful branch. With chapter three at the end, these women who desired in a worldly way to make themselves appear beautiful. And they were exalting themselves and drawing attention to themselves. But now in chapter four, we're going to see what really should get the attention and how we really should think about beauty. Beauty is found in the branch. Of the Lord and we have in chapter 4 mention of daughters Uh, in verse 4 you see he will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion well those are the daughters that he brought up in chapter 3 verse 16 the daughters of Zion are haughty but God is going to work and we'll see how this happens he's going to work in their hearts And he will cleanse them of this filth that they were showing at the end of chapter 3. We also see a a contrast of a connection, I should say, of the day of the Lord. Look at what time period we're talking about in chapter 4, verse 2. It's in that day that the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. It's the day that he's been talking about since chapter 2. And he mentioned... In verse uh, uh, 10, chapter 2, verse 10, sorry, no, it's verse 12. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, again, in that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets. And so chapter 4 has to be read in context of chapter 3. It's the day of the Lord when God will deal with the prideful women, the women who are exalting themselves as goddesses and seeking at to be like that. God will deal with them and then he will show everyone what is truly beautiful on that day. And so the the, the passage challenges us to think about what we value and what we value as beautiful and glorious and worthy of honor and what we want to teach women and girls to grow up to be. So let's begin looking at the passage more in detail. And first we see the beautiful branch described in verse 2. Read verse 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now what is this branch? And what makes a branch beautiful? Uh, When I do yard work, when you do yard work, I doubt that you... You walk up to your wife or your kids and you just say, look at this branch. This is a beautiful branch. It doesn't make much sense to us. How can a branch be beautiful? Well, Isaiah is introducing to to us a concept of a prophecy of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, in a way that the Bible talks about the Messiah. The word here for branch is a word that means shoot, like a plant, a shoot or a stalk of a plant that you put into the ground and it grows and it becomes a tree. So it's a a shoot, it's a branch. Uh, The word first appears with this context about the Messiah in 2 Samuel 23. And I'm just going to read you a bunch of verses. You don't have to turn there, but maybe you want to write them down. But the first one is in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. And Daniel said, uh, David says, Is my house not so indeed with God? For God has made an everlasting covenant with me, properly ordered in all things and secure. For will he not indeed make all my salvation and all my delight grow? And so he's, uh, David is saying God has made an eternal covenant with David. That from David's family would be the king who would reign forever. And David says, will not this grow? That's the word for sprout or shoot. God is going to make the king from his family shoot up. And so we're looking forward to this shoot. Well then, Isaiah uses this word. And this is the first part place in Isaiah where he mentions the branch this messiah is going to be the branch of the lord and he goes on to talk about this throughout his book in chapter six he talks about israel becoming like a stump assyria and babylon are going to be like the chainsaw that cuts the tree down to its very stump and at the end of isaiah six he says the holy seed is its stump a remnant of israel will be like a stump. And everybody's going to think it's dead. Nothing could come from this stump. But then in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Isaiah prophesies that a branch or a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. So from this Israel that is nearly dead and nearly destroyed, the branch is going to sprout up. And this will be from the family of Jesse, the family of David. Well, then 150 years later, we have Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says in chapter 23, verse 5, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. And then in chapter 33, Jeremiah says, "I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David." So we have more understanding of who this branch is, a king from the line of David." Zechariah, then is the last one. Uh, Zechariah 3:8. "Behold my servant, the branch." Zechariah 6:12, "My servant whose name is the branch. So it's like it's his nickname. Uh, like you call somebody the rock or something. This guy goes by his, the rock. That's, that's how you know him. Well, you look at this Messiah. He is the branch. That's like his nickname. Because he will be the king, the Messiah from the line of David. And so this idea of the branch comes from the analogy of a family tree um, when you talk about your ancestry you talk about your family tree maybe you're very proud of your heritage your ethnicity you talk about how you're Italian or you're Irish or you're Scottish or Dutch or whatever whatever it is you're you you know the family tree and we use that word well a tree has branches and so you are a branch On the family tree and so the prophets are just saying that this Messiah will be a branch of the family tree of David but notice back in Isaiah now we're back in chapter 4 verse 2 he's the branch of the Lord the branch of the Lord what does it mean that he's the branch of the Lord The word of could mean a lot of different things. Uh, It can be used in a lot of different ways. I'll give you a a little Spanish lesson. Um, In Spanish, I once made the mistake of asking for a glass of water. And everybody laughed at me, made fun of me. In Spanish, you don't ask for a glass of water. You ask for a glass with water. Because a glass of water is a glass made out of water. But in English, the word of can mean all sorts of different things. So when I say jar of clay, you know that's not a jar with clay inside of it. It's a jar that is made out of clay. But when we say glass of water, it's not a glass made out of water. It's a glass with water inside of it. So what is the branch of the Lord? From the Lord, uh, having Lordness within it? What does this mean? Well, it's a branch. If we're thinking about this metaphor, it's a branch that not only is from the line of David, but will come from God himself. The tree is the Lord, the root is the Lord. The branch will come from, out of, the Lord. Now, I wouldn't build my whole doctrine of the Trinity on this verse, but it is a a hint or it's pointing forward to understanding that this branch will be coming from God himself and will in some way share divinity, be God like the Lord. And then... We see in the the rest of verse 2 that it talks about the fruit of the land. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. Now, uh, I think most of us, we will just read that phrase and it sounds like, well, when the Messiah comes, land is going to be fertile, there will be lots of good crops, it's going to be green. But there are many commentators and there were basically everybody in the early church they interpreted the fruit of the land as being a reference to the messiah so we have two things in parallel referring to the same person the branch of the lord beautiful and glorious the fruit of the land not a different thing but the same thing shall be the pride and honor of the survivors and so, what this would be pointing to is that this branch, like a real branch, will not only have its root in the Lord, but will come out of the earth, will be made of dust, will be a man. And so, we have here a, another hint the branch will be both divine and human. And so we know that the branch is pointing forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And there are plenty of places in the New Testament where uh, it talks about Jesus as the Messiah and the son of David. So I don't think I have to prove that one to you. But where does it say that Jesus is the branch? Well, there's only one place. Uh, It's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. In Matthew 2, verse 23, Matthew is talking about how Jesus and his parents came and they began to live in Nazareth. And it says, Matthew tells us, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, you can ransack the Old Testament And you won't be able to find a prophecy that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. So what is this being spoken of by the prophets? Well, Matthew is saying this because the word for branch in Isaiah chapter 11 is the word that is Nazar, N-Z-R. And so by being a Nazarene, by living in Nazareth, Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of being the branch. So we know what the branch is. We see how Isaiah uh, is talking about him, and we know that this branch is Jesus. But now let's think about how the branch is described. Still in verse 2, he is described as beautiful, Glorious, pride, and honor of the survivors. And Really, those four words are nouns. He is beauty. He is glory. He is pride. He is honor. He is the beauty of the survivors. He is what people look at and recognize and see as beauty and glory and pride and honor. He is the definition of all these things, the supreme example of all these things. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The branch is all the glory and all the beauty in Emmanuel's land. It's like when the the book of Revelation says that there will be no need for sun or moon because the Lord God will be their light. God is the light. And so in the same way, God is the beauty. The branch is the beauty and the glory and the pride and honor of the new heavens and the new earth. This is also what Isaiah talks about later. Chapter 28, verse 5, he says, In that day... The Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So he's using the same words, glory and beauty. And what will be the glory of the people? It will be a person. God. It will be the Lord of hosts. So the branch is the beauty, the glory, the pride, and the honor. And Isaiah is using these words in particular to be a contrast to chapters 2 and 3. If you look up at chapter 3, verse 18, when it says the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, it's the very same word that he uses that's translated as honor. It's the honor. So what Isaiah is saying is that the women, by the way that they dressed, because of their pride, wanted to draw all the attention to themselves. They wanted honor. They wanted to get things and put on things that would make men look at them and bring them honor. Isaiah says, After after they're dealt with, we're going to see that the only honor on that last day will go to the branch. We see also the words for glory and pride, those two words in the middle, are used in chapter 2. In chapter uh, 2, verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. So again, all these people who are trying to be proud and lofty and exalting themselves, including those women who, as it said in verse 16, chapter 3, they were haughty. The Lord has a day against them because the branch will be the pride, the honor, the beauty of that land. so he's giving us a contrast, especially a contrast with the daughters, as I said. And he'll, he'll mention the daughters again in verse 4. Two things cannot coexist. The pride of the daughters, the pride of the women, the finery, the honor of the women cannot coexist with the branch being recognized as beautiful, glorious, the pride and the honor. And so on that day, God has to deal with them and bring glory to himself. So, this is the branch. Now, how is the branch beautiful? What makes the branch beautiful? Well, if you think of, you know, just a normal branch, so, you know, I don't, I don't cut down branches in the yard and say, look at this just beautiful branch. But, but I do look at trees in my yard and plants, and maybe you do too. Uh, recently, we have this one bush that has just got these flaming red leaves. And it's just amazing to just look at those red leaves. And so the branch is budding and Creating these leaves that look beautiful. Well, what's beautiful about the branch of the Lord is his graces, his character, the fruit of the Spirit that is in him. We read Psalm 45 earlier, and Psalm 45 says that the king is the most handsome of the sons of men. But then it says, grace is poured out upon your lips. That's why he's the most handsome. Because God the Father pours out grace upon his Son so that then everything that comes forth from the Son is grace. The branch is beautiful because Jesus Christ is perfect in his grace, his patience, his self control, his gentleness, and his love towards sinners. The way even that he rebukes sinners, the way he shows his wisdom in his teaching, this is what makes him beautiful. You read the Gospels, and I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I read the Gospels, I am surprised again and again every time even though I know like you know I kind of know what Jesus is going to say but when I read it again you are surprised by the grace the wisdom the authority that he shows in his character in his life and his teaching this is why Jesus is the most handsome of the sons Man. And so we contrast that with our ideas of what we determine to be beauty. Christ Himself, Isaiah 53 tells us, has nothing in his appearance that would make us desire him. Basically, what it says, Isaiah 53, too, there's nothing attractive about him from a physical standpoint. And so how can a person who physically does not look attractive at all also be a beautiful branch and the most handsome of the sons of men? It's because God is not describing beauty as physical attractiveness. And so this is why Christ is the most beautiful, because he has the most fruit of the Spirit, the most grace of God at work in him. And of course, Christ is most beautiful when he is hanging on the cross, when he is beaten, when his beard is plucked out in humiliation, and a crown of thorns is banged against his head, and he's being uh, hit and slapped and, and bruised and spat upon, and then he hangs there naked on the cross in shame and agony, suffocating to death, bleeding and beaten. And the Bible is saying that is when he is most attractive, most beautiful. John Owen, in communion with God, he says he was Most lovely to sinners. And never more glorious and desirable than when he came broken and dead from the cross. And Jesus was most desirable because this is when he was most full of grace. Most showing complete selfless love for sinners to not honor himself to not draw attention to himself and his own attractiveness in a physical sense, but to pour out his life for others, to show his grace for others. And, of course, the irony is that is what makes him the most beautiful and brings him the most honor. Jesus did this to save sinners like us. So that's the beautiful branch. Now, in the next part of the passage, uh, let's look at a beautified people. And we see this in verses 3 to 4. And really, I want to change this to a beautified daughters. Beautified daughters, because that's really the focus. Uh, Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. He who has left in Zion... And remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. We're not going to, just because of time, focus too much on verse three. But verse 3, I you know, saw at the end of verse 2, a mention of survivors. Verse 3, those who are left in Zion. And so Zion here is the, ultimately the, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, so it's talking about the last day. There will be those who are left. We call it a remnant. A remnant are people who remain after the purging and the judgment. And there are, there are three Uh, Four things that will be be done to them. These are passive things. They will be called holy. They have been recorded for life. They have been appointed to eternal life. So their names are written in the book. They are washed away from the filth. And they are cleansed of their stains. And So we're going to focus on verse 4. The Lord will have washed away by this last day the filth of the daughters of Zion. And So, like I said before, the daughters of Zion are from chapter 3, verse 16. The same daughters. Some of them exalted themselves. Some of them, God grants them repentance. God humbles them. So, many of them, they will face the judgment of God. Some of them, will find repentance and grace from God, and they will be in the remnant, and God will have washed away their filth. So they are the repenting remnant. They are cleansed. Cleansed from their filth. Now I wonder if if you think that word is appropriate. Filth. Women who draw attention to themselves with sensuality and and immodesty. Or sexually immoral women. That's what he's describing as filth. And the wording that Isaiah is using is from the, the sacrificial system. Where they kill an animal and they remove the guts Washing away the filth is like the priest who removes the guts out of the animal. Now, I've had chickens before, and maybe some of you have gone through this process. It's not pleasant when you have to remove those guts out of that animal. It's filthy. Is this the way that we think about these kinds of sins? this type of immorality But the good news is god can cleanse the filth we live in a culture that that does not think immodesty is filthy and does not think sexual immorality is really a big deal everybody's just hooking up everybody's just going around and Less, I think less than like 50% of people now are are married, so they don't see it as filth. It's just normal. But we need to understand how God defines sin, but also see how God can cleanse from sin. This is a work of God's grace. The Lord washes away. Women who have sinned in this way, even if you would deny it, it makes you feel filthy. The good news is that God can wash away your filth. And God can make you clean. And God can make you change. So he goes on to say "It's that he's going to give a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, purging off your sins, changing your heart. This is what John said about Jesus, that he would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So The Holy Spirit gives you conviction of sin, gives you power to change, and gives you repentance so that you will turn from your sins and seek to follow him. If God saves you, if he shows you his grace, he can both cleanse you From your sins, wash them away, wash away the guilt, and he can also change you. Burn off those desires to sin in this way. And so this is how God beautifies the daughters of Zion. Well, finally, let's look at a beautiful bride in verses 5 and 6. He ends by saying, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. We're here in this whole passage of Isaiah between chapters 2 and 4. And you notice how chapter 2 began with the vision of the mountain of the Lord and the, the, the presence of God over this mountain. And then we have all the judgment on the day of the Lord, but Isaiah ends with this vision again. Mount Zion, where the presence of God is over Mount Zion. God blesses his people By being with them. And he's over the whole city. He's not just over the Holy of Holies. Or just the temple. But the whole city. God's presence is everywhere. And he's there to bless. And to protect his people. And to guide his people. But I want to focus on the last phrase of verse 5. Where it says, Over all the glory there will be a canopy. Because this phrase keeps us going with the theme that Isaiah is trying to tell us about, of the daughters of Zion. The glory, uh, overall the glory where the canopy is, uh, which is the whole city, the canopy is a reference to a wedding, to marriage. Uh, the, the word for the canopy there is the word that only is used to refer to the bridal chamber, the marriage chamber. So you probably know Psalm 19 verse 5, God brings out the son like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. It's this word canopy. Or in Joel chapter 2 verse 16, Joel calls the people to, to come to the temple and fast and repent, and he says, "Let the bride and the groom leave their chamber. So it's the marriage bed of the bride, and the groom, that's the canopy. So, Isaiah uses this word to try to get us to see that God will enter into a relationship with his people that's like a marriage. God will marry the daughters of Zion. Christ will have a wedding with his bride. I think this is what uh, John in Revelation 21, he uh, says that he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem, the city, which represents the church, is like a bride. And so here we have the city of Zion as a bride. So what's the point? The point is that the daughters were filthy. The daughters were immoral. But if they were to look to the branch and recognize the beauty of the branch and the beauty of his death on the cross for their sins, if they will repent of their sins and if God will cleanse away their filth and give them the spirit of Uh, burning off their sins, if they will become beautified daughters, they can then enter into this perfect, loving relationship with God forever. It's the promise of the gospel, especially to the daughters, especially to women, that you can be loved forever so you don't have to go trying to become a goddess you don't have to try to make your life about looking for love from another man but you can be loved forever by God and live in this perfect relationship for eternity so Uh, to, to wrap up. So Isaiah is giving us this picture of the branch as the definition of beauty and glory. And so just want to repeat and remind you to think again, to resist the lie of the world. The world is always putting this in front of your eyes. As women, you will have this always in front of your eyes, that that you find your worth in how you look. And sadly, you might think that way because men, many men reinforce that view. And they will only look to you, and they will only find value in you because of how you look, or because of your sensuality. And this passage is telling us that beauty is found and defined by Christ and his graces. So all I'm trying to do is apply what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he says to women, do not let your adorning be external, but let it be the hidden Person of the heart. That was Christ. Christ in his grace was what was beautiful. And that's what these daughters of Zion were failing at. And so this is what Peter instructs and commands for women to pursue. Women, is this what you seek after? That you're adorning, that what gets people's attention is the hidden person of the heart. And men, is this how you consider women? To go back to John Angel James, he says, Christianity teaches men to consider the woman in an honorable aspect. Because it teaches us to look at women by the hidden person of the heart is this how you think about women is this how you talk about them is this how you value them beauty is found in the branch of the lord let's pray Our God, we thank you for the promise of the gospel, for your great love for your people, and how that love is demonstrated above all in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Christ and his work on behalf of sinners, and that by faith we are cleansed in him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to look to you, to your glory, to follow you with all of our hearts. Lord, we pray that the adorning would be the hidden person of the heart. By your spirit, give us the fruit of the spirit and more Christ-likeness in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen.